Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. Here we are again. We have returned. Back to this year podcast. This is the podcast where history is studied for real. Real history. Not fake history. Not made up history. Just real history from the letters of our founding fathers. Exactly the way we like it. Straight from their words. Their comments. And the comments of the people around them, of course. We read letters from people besides, you know, the, the typical founding fathers that you would think of, like the Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, Samuel Adams, John Jay, etc., we also read letters from people around them who were themselves, in a sense, founding fathers, but lesser known. And then, of course, the women of the founding generation, Abigail Adams, and so on and so forth. We do read from them as well. Great insight that we get from Abigail Adams. I mentioned before that, you know, Abigail Adams, John Adams. John Adams is my favorite, I think, founding father. Uh, there's a lot I like about John Adams, and there's a lot I like, I like about Abigail Adams. And them together, too, also, when I think about it. And you know one of the things I like most about John and Abigail Adams? I mean, these two people were married for, like, Seemingly forever. And they stayed married, seemingly forever. And they seem to be very happy with one another for the most part. I mean, Lord knows they, they had their issues, I'm sure. But they seem to be a very determined pair and very much of a similar mind when it came to forming up the United States of America. I mean, if you ever wanted uh, proof positive that, that marriage can work for a lifetime, John and Abigail Adams is a perfect example of that. Uh, really, all you got to do is try, and then the magic can happen. There's a lot you can learn from the Founding Fathers. It's not just about politics, and it's not just about creating a country. It's about how two people work together over a long period of time. But that's a story for another day. Maybe we'll talk more about that at another time. But uh, in our most recent episode, we talk, I, it was titled Conspiracy Theory and Conspiracy Facts. So, you know, I, I get asked questions sometimes about why I talk about some of the things I talk about around the Founding Fathers, and what in the world is this conspiracy theory thing that I'm talking about. It's not that I'm trying to... Um, fan the flames of conspiracy theory, or I'm trying to advocate for it. I'm just trying to make a point. There are a couple groups of people out there, and one group of people, you know, literally likes to pretend like conspiracy doesn't exist. In the previous episode, I, I, made, I talked about it like it was, uh, I, I made a reference to Sasquatch, and that's that's how people refer to conspiracy theory. It's just, it's fake. It doesn't exist. But uh, it does, and I think I made the case for that in the previous episode. Governments do this all the time, and the reason why I'm talking about this is because we're watching one unfold right before our eyes in 1775. I believe that the king is conspiring with his people in the court, that is to say in his administration, so to speak, and possibly with people within parliament to instigate a war with the American colonies. And, and honestly, he'd be fine with there being no war so long as the American colonies just do whatever the, whatever it is that he wants them to do. In other words, they just accept the tyranny. They accept the corruption. They accept the removal of their rights. Of course, they didn't want to, so King George III was happy to uh, engage a shooting war to make it happen. And he did. And that's why he's sending the troops over. I mean, he says one thing, it's, you know, it's for the defense of the town, this, that, and the other thing, but really it's for something else. And what do we call that? And the answer is, it's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy to deprive the American colonies of their, their rights, their liberties. This really happened. This isn't mythology. This isn't fake. It's real. And we're demonstrating that in these letters. And we're going to continue to do that. And we're going to talk about things that, you know, on this podcast and episodes, in this episode and episodes to come, that people don't like to talk about in the United States of America. And frankly speaking, in many other countries, they don't like to talk about it either because it's very inconvenient 
You know, it's not, it's not, it doesn't make people feel happy to know that uh, their government is likely conspiring against them in some particular kind of way. It doesn't make them happy to think that. But it does happen on occasion. Not all the time, but it does happen. And in 1775, it happened. And I gave a few other examples, you know, where this has happened in the previous episode. Yeah, that's just a few, really. I mean, this, this has been going on for probably, like I said, 10,000 years. So we're going to dive back into the letters on this episode here. Going to go back to Dr. Benjamin Franklin, the wise old man from the Founding Fathers. I mean, you can't talk about the founding of the United States of America without talking about Benjamin Franklin. Otherwise, you're missing something. You're missing a big piece of the puzzle. There's a lot of personalities in the founding generation. The, a lot of these people were very important. Benjamin Franklin was one of them. There were people who were moderately important. But they all had their own personality. They all had their own way about them. We, sometimes people like to treat the Founding Fathers like this monolithic group of people, but that was not the case. They were individuals. And somebody like John Adams was very different than Benjamin Franklin. And that's fine. It's in those differences that they, uh, they put together a coalition with different ideas that actually get the job done. Different approaches, different solutions. And different personalities work in different places at different times. Dr. Franklin had his own way about it. And uh, we're going to read some comments from Dr. Franklin on this episode of the podcast. We're going to go back to him, and we're going to talk about, in large measure, we're going to talk about history and how it how it seem, how it possibly you know repeats itself more often than we would like, and when we least expect it, perhaps. So let us travel back in time, and let's invite Dr. Benjamin Franklin on the podcast as our guest today, and let's go do that right now. Well, this is going to be a fun episode. I tell you what, you know, I'm going to, well, I'm going to have some fun doing it because, you know, well, and that, and I'm also going to kind of agonize over it somewhat too. You know, I, for those of us who do study history, and I know a lot of you folks out there are with me on that, um, it is sometimes a very unpleasant process to read history. You have to read a lot of really bad things if you study history, a lot of really bad things. And if you, if you have any empathy at all for human beings, if you have any empathy at all for the human struggle, you can feel the, the, the challenges, the agony, the turmoil from, from back through the ages. And it's, it's very difficult to really take all that information in, especially when you see how easy it is for people to fall into these kinds of traps and to, to live out that curse that is history repeats itself. It is a curse upon mankind that history repeats itself, but it is a it is a curse of our own doing. We do it to ourselves. You know, sometimes I listen to people lament the world that we live in, the terrible nature of it at times. I mean, there's there's two kinds of people. The, the people who drive around town with the life is good bumper sticker, you know what you know who I'm talking about. They got that bumper sticker on the back of their car that says life is good. And then there's other people who really do experience some pain in their life. And they, they lament this, this dark world we live in and they, they wonder to themselves how how on earth did it get this bad? And how did it become this way? And the answer is, just look in a mirror, and you'll find the answer to your question. We do it to ourselves, and one of the ways that we do it is we allow the bad parts of history to repeat themselves because we don't learn the lessons of the people who came before us. You know, people learn those lessons very harshly. You know, sometimes people have to suffer and die by the millions to learn a particular lesson, and then we forget, because it doesn't apply to us. You know, that's that's not our life. That was uh, that was somebody else's life, you know, 80 years ago, or it was somebody else's life 200 years ago, or it was somebody else's life 5,000 years ago. We don't care. This is a different life. We live in a new age. This is a new age after all. You know, this is a this is the modern age. That was that was old times. And what their their lessons, their history don't apply to us, right? I mean, that's the that's the talk of the uh, the foolish man, uh, the ignorant individual. 
you know, frankly speaking, the world would be a lot better off without, because those are the people that make it happen, again. And we're going to read a little bit about that, I think. We're going to read a little bit about how these things come back to haunt us in time. We're going to start off with a letter from Dr. Benjamin Franklin, written to the New Jersey Assembly Committees of Correspondence on February 14th, 1775. This letter was written from London. Dr. Franklin is still still in London, uh, at great personal risk to himself, by the way. Uh, this man is in constant danger every day, in danger of being arrested by the tyrannical regime over there in London and being put put in some kind of a, a jail as a political prisoner. Anytime you're a, um, a person advocating for the rights of the people and trying to make sure that the Constitution is enforced for what it is, like Dr. Franklin is doing here, anytime you're that kind of a person and you're sitting in the Capitol, the capital city of a tyrannical regime, you are in grave danger, and you are in grave danger of being thrown into jail as a political prisoner and treated very harshly, and that's Dr. Franklin in 1775. He is in grave danger, ladies and gentlemen. Now, we take it for granted that he he wasn't arrested and tortured or killed or God knows what, but we, we take it for granted only because we know the history. But it's important not to forget in the moment Dr. Franklin had no idea that he would be safe or not. It's important to keep that in mind as we go. So let's let's uh, begin this letter. Quote, Petitions are come up to Parliament from all the trading ports and manufacturing towns concerned in the American commerce, setting forth the loss and ruin they are likely to suffer by the stop put to that commerce, and praying that lenient measures be adopted for restoring it. The North American and West India merchants in London have also petitioned to the same purpose. But little notice has hitherto been taken of those petitions, and both houses have addressed the king declaring a rebellion in the Massachusetts Bay, in consequence whereof more troops are about to be sent thither, and administration seems determined on reducing the colonies by force to a solemn acknowledgement of the power claimed by Parliament of making laws to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever. A bill is preparing to deprive four New England colonies of their fishery, and other severities are threatened. Yet many here are confident that if the non-consumption of British manufacturers in America is soberly and steadily adhered to another year, these measures will all be reversed and our rights acknowledged, end quote. Well, that's a hopeful thought there towards the end, however misguided that that is. I know these people really are hoping for the best. You gotta love these people. They really are hoping for a peaceful resolution, and they're hoping for the best. But, you know, this government, this government is determined to oppress the people, to harm the people, to take everything that they possibly can away from the people, whatever they feel like is necessary to perpetuate their tyranny. They don't give a crap about anything else but that. Keep that in mind as we continue here. So ruin, the commerce, is about to be in ruin they say. Let's read this again. Quote, Petitions are come up to Parliament from all the trading ports and manufacturing towns concerned in the American commerce, setting forth the loss and ruin they are likely to suffer by the stop put to that commerce, end quote. So the merchants in Britain are very well aware that this uh, incessant battle between the king and his parliament with the American colonies is harming the economy. And it's not going to do anything good for the people who are just trying to make a living. They're trying to earn earn money so that they can support their families, so that they can support their towns, their local economies, and all the rest of it. And they can raise their children. So they will experience ruin, they think. That's not my word, by the way. That's their word. They, they picked that word. I didn't. Again, I'm reading real history here. This isn't fake history. 
Now, do you think the government cares? Do you think the king and the parliament give a crap about the economy? Specifically, these merchants, do you think they care? And the answer to the question is clearly they don't. Otherwise, they would have ex- they would have taken the peace. Remember in previous episodes, the parliament had received offers of peaceful solutions, and parliament rejected it by a vast majority of vote. They put it to a vote and rejected it. They rejected peace. Go back and listen to that episode. If this is the first time you're finding this podcast, go back and listen. You'll find that very interesting. Parliament doesn't care. They don't care about the economy suffering. They don't care about the people suffering. They don't care about any of it. They want their tyranny, and they're going to get it. And it doesn't matter how many people they have to break. It doesn't matter how many people they have to kill. It doesn't matter how much they have to destroy and pillage. They will get their tyranny. And we're going to see that play out. They're going to try. Ultimately, they will fail. As, of course, we know there is a United States of America today, such as it is. But, the, you know, this, this talk of commerce in, uh, in Britain at the time is very important. You know, the, the American colonies are trying through their non-consumption and non-importation and things of that nature. They're trying to communicate with the king that things really are best when we're engaged in commerce with one another. That is to say, between the colonies and Britain. And these acts that you have imposed are impeding upon that. Obviously, the king has shut down the port of Boston. We know that. We've listened to the, That's part of the intolerable acts. He shut it down. Thus, he shut down the commerce out of the port of Boston. That was the king that did that. So the colonists are like, well, you know, if that's the way you're going to have it, then we're not going to import these British goods that you're demanding that we import and tax and all the rest of it, because you're doing this in an improper way. You're trying to force us to do what you want us to do, and we're not going to do that. We have, we, have, we have our way of doing that, and we need to stick to that. There's a historic way the colonies have engaged in commerce with Great Britain, and that's the way we like it. And it involves keeping our rights. Governments often will will do this thing where they will ruin an entire economy, they will ruin an entire country to get what they to get what the government wants, which basically is ultimate power. And haven't we seen that before? You, you know, I, I've talked many times about Ivan the Terrible because he is a classic, classic example of an out of control tyrant who almost destroyed his country. Uh, his country was invaded while he was busy massacring his own people. And he put his country in great jeopardy because he massacred his own people and because he had declared war upon them. Did he really care at the end of the day? I think maybe he finally cared when everything was falling apart and he really needed to cobble together some kind of a, a security for his country. You know, but up to that point, I don't think he cared. He didn't care at all about how much he tore his country apart. He didn't give a crap. He was just trying to... Um, affect his uh, his particular brand of tyranny on his country. And, you know, that happens over and over again if you if you watch that. I mean, it, like, you know, I, I in previous, the cl- again, another classic example of that is Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Do you think any of those people cared and the government cared about how much they were tearing uh, Germany apart? They didn't give a crap. And, uh, you know, fr- I talked about the Revolutionary War in France, or, or excuse me, the Revolution in France. You can call it a war also, actually. But um, the Revolution in France was... was um, of a similar nature. Those people who were doing it really tore France apart while they were doing it. They, they practically destroyed the country. It's, it's a miracle that it actually survived it in any meaningful way. And the, at the end of the day, the only thing that really did kind of hold it together was Napoleon. Do you think any of those people cared that they were destroying their country? They didn't give a crap. They were, they were cutting heads off in the streets and having a whale of a time. And this is a recurring theme again and again of those kind of people in government, revolutionaries, and so on and so forth. They don't care. And you see it possibly in economies, you know, both, you know, during the Revolutionary War in the United States and also before and after. You know, energy today, energy is a very 
is very is very closely linked with commerce. You can't really have commerce today without energy. And you ever notice how when energy gets expensive, it does hamper commerce quite a bit, and it, it does cause a problem with commerce. There doesn't seem to be a lot of concern for that. There, there does seem to be this kind of drive to make it gradually more and more expensive on purpose. And what's the, what's the end game there? What's the, what's the logical conclusion of that? And why is that? And does it, does it have any resemblance at all to what King George III was doing in 1775? When he basically decided to let the merchants and the, and the commerce between America and Great Britain just completely fall apart just to affect his tyranny? I'm just I'm just asking the question. These are questions you have to ask yourself, and maybe the answer is no. There's no there's no correlation. There, there's no connection there. There's no similarity to be had there. Maybe that's the answer to the question, but maybe it's not. These are things you have to ask yourself, and these are the questions you start to ask yourself. If you actually study history. You start to see these things a little bit differently. You start to see them from a different perspective. I, I look at I look at commerce today not from the perspective of today. I look at it from the perspective of all of the all of the ways that commerce has been done or affected over the last. 5,000 years. That's the way I look at it. But pay close attention to this thing called commerce. You know, the, the, oftentimes governments will try to rail against commerce. You know, the Soviet Union did this. The Soviet Union had this thing of attacking anybody who tried to set themselves apart, who tried to work harder and earn more. It's very difficult to get ahead in the Soviet Union unless you were a corrupt political figure, in which case it was very easy to get ahead. But aside from that, everybody was kind of equally miserable. They figured that out towards the end of the Soviet Union. They were trying to figure out why in the world is the Soviet economy failing miserably. And one of the answers to that question was motivation. They didn't have motivation to actually succeed because there was no reward. Because the, the government had effectively declared war on success. They had declared war on people becoming successful in an economy. The regular guy. The, you know, the, the middle of the country, so to speak. Uh, the people who are willing to work for something. They didn't necessarily wanted to be want to be rich. They just wanted to get ahead. They wanted to progress. They wanted to move up. They wanted to have they wanted to have more so that they could provide for their families and their children and all that. Very difficult to do that in the Soviet Union because again they had declared war on the uh, on success in the economy, and thus the Soviet economy was not successful. We saw that, and you see that in the contrast between West Germany and East Germany. And it's amazing how Germany has forgotten that. Germany has completely forgotten. That that it's it and it it shocks me to this day because they're right there. They experienced it. There's there's millions of people alive today in Germany who lived through it. Yet that country has by and large completely forgotten what they went through between West and East Germany. The differences and why one was successful and the other one was just miserable for the most part, as best I can tell. I mean, there's a reason why uh, East Germany collapsed and West Germany didn't. And so don't forget these lessons for crying out loud. You know, and, and if you want a current day example, look at North Korea and South Korea for crying out loud. You have one country, well, one part of a country, really. I mean, North Korea that has declared war on success in the economy. And then there's the South where they haven't declared war on, on success in the economy. And you've got to be worried when you start hearing people in government declare war on certain segments of the economy. You've got to be very concerned about that. I don't care what their rationalization is. I don't care what their excuse is. Because it's usually, I mean, whatever their excuse is, it's usually always not, it's not that. It's something else. And it's this, it's this thing that we're seeing with King George III and the British Parliament. They can have whatever excuse that they want. Quote, declaring a rebellion in the Massachusetts Bay, end quote. That's their excuse. But that's, that's not what it is. They want to affect their tyranny. And so they've effectively just said to the merchants and the tradesmen and these people engaged in commerce with America, we don't give a crap. You're suffering. We don't care. Heck, we're going to shut it down even more. 
We're going to shut that. We're going to shut that economy down even more than we already have. Quote, a bill is preparing to deprive the four New England colonies of their fishery. End quote. We're going to go to town. We're going to shut this economy down. We don't care. We don't care about this loss and ruin that these merchants in Britain are talking about. Don't give a crap. We've got a job to do. We've got a tyranny that we're trying to push. And it's going to happen whether you like it or not. That's what we're seeing here. And again, I'm trying to make the point. We've seen this before. Over and over and over again. Throughout history. And if you think that these people, these kind of people are done doing this, they're not. They're not done. And this line about, you know, the rebellious Massachusetts... Quote, both houses have addressed the king, declaring a rebellion in the Massachusetts Bay. In consequence, whereof more troops are about to be sent thither, and administration seems determined on reducing the colonies by force to a solemn acknowledgement of the power claimed by Parliament of making laws to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever, end quote. What the heck have I just been talking about? You think I make this stuff up? I don't. I get it straight from these letters. Quote, setting forth the loss and ruin they are likely to suffer by the stop put to that commerce, end quote. Quote, the administration seems determined on reducing the colonies by force, end quote. Quote, a bill is preparing to deprive the four New England colonies of their fishery, end quote. I mean, does this paint a picture of the government basically declaring open warfare upon the people? And for what? They're not being too terribly subtle about it either. You know, most of the time, you know, governments are pretty subtle about this kind of thing. They'll declare war on their people, and they will they will try to, you know, pawn it off as being some kind of a, oh, a necessary action to maintain the peace or something of that nature. And they're kind of saying that here. They, they, that's why they declare open rebellion in Massachusetts, because they're trying to say that, you know, we're doing all this terrible stuff, but we're doing it to keep the peace. We're trying to restore, you know, law and order, et cetera, et cetera. But, the, you know, there really is law and order in Boston and the surrounding community. These people are not lawless. Mostly they're just farming and tending to their shops and mind their own business. But the, the way they define rebelliousness is basically they don't want to do what the government is telling them to do. That's how the government, in this case, is defining rebelliousness. So, the, you know, the Founding Fathers, again, part of the reason why we have a Constitution and the Bill of Rights is because the Founding Fathers come from this background of having to deal with this crap. The government telling them what, to, what they can do and what they can't do a little bit too often. And the Founding Fathers were like, we've had enough of this crap. We have rights and you can't do that. So yes, we're going to have freedom of speech. Yes, we're going to have our well-regulated militia and the right to keep and bear arms. Yes, we are. And we're also going to be secure in our private property. Yes, we are. Which are all the things that the British government tried to take away from them, by the way. And they were going to do it by force of arms. They were going to do it by attacking the economy. They were going to do it by a lot of a lot of means. Attacking the economy is a very, very, it's a very good way to try to attack people's rights and to, to take away their freedom. It really is. It, uh, it has a... Um, it has a history of, of working very well at oppressing a group of people. If you wonder why governments like to do that, like to try that method, it's because it works. So that, that's why, and that's why I say be very watchful of it. And when people today, in this day and age, when people today try to limit commerce, when they try to shut it down, or when they try to shut down energy, which is today, again, like the lifeblood of an economy, when they try to shut things like that down, you need to pay attention. That's not something that should just pass over your over your head and, and sail on into the into the onto the horizon without you paying notice to it. Just like this kind of stuff that we're talking about in 1775 did not go unnoticed by the founding fathers. When the intolerable acts were passed and implemented, the founding fathers created a congress in the colonies to address this problem, to try to solve it. They took really clear notice of it, and they weren't just going to let it happen. They were going to stand up and they were going to say something about it. 
this line, you know, is very shaking. You know, it's it, it really does. It can rattle you if you understand the true meaning of it. Quote, administration seems determined on reducing the colonies by force to a solemn acknowledgement of the power claimed by Parliament of making laws to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever. End quote. By force. That's kind of a revisit of our episodes 66 and 70 that talk a lot about that. But to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever. I mean, this is basically Parliament saying that we have supreme authority to do whatever we want. We can pass any law to do whatever we want, and there's not a thing you can do about it. You don't have any rights. There are no limitations on our power. We do what we want when we want to. This is government becoming abusive like we've talked about in previous episodes. Governments love to do this. They love to, they love to take power and say that we have supreme authority in all things. Governments love to do this. This is the, this is the end game. This is the thing that you always have to be careful of and watchful for. And it's the thing that the Founding Fathers really tried very, very hard to try to stop before it ever got started. That's the, the purpose behind the limited constitution that limits government. This is what the Ninth and Tenth Amendments are all about. And if you ever wondered why the Bill of Rights is a list of things that say specifically what the government cannot do to you, that's why. The government can't do this to you, it can't do this to you, it can't do this, it can't do that, it can't do this, it can't do that, etc., etc. That's, that's the Founding Fathers saying, you can't. No. You cannot. No. You. Will. Not. Because they knew that sooner or later, the United States government would try to say exactly, exactly what is in this letter, right here. Quote, Administration seems determined on reducing the colonies by force to a solemn acknowledgement of the power claimed by Parliament of making laws to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever, end quote. Just replace the word Parliament with Congress. You think the Founding Fathers didn't think that, that would happen someday in this country? Of course they did. That's why the Constitution was written the way that it is. That's why they had to circle back and put the Bill of Rights in there after the Constitution was ratified. That's why they did that. They didn't do it because they were bored on a Tuesday afternoon. They did it because they knew this would happen. The government would come back and say exactly that. And the Founding Fathers wanted to put their foot down and say, No, you will not. Not on my watch, you won't. And let the Bill of Rights stand as a reminder to all Americans in all time, No, the government cannot do this. That's why I say these letters are the instruction manual to the United States Constitution. And I try to put this in a modern context, because unfortunately Benjamin Franklin isn't here to do it for us. So somebody has to, and I try to do it for him. So when I say things like, you know, be watchful of these attacks on the economy, be watchful on the excitement that some people get when they talk about re removing from the people access to energy, access to the things that move the economy. Be very watchful of that because it's not unlikely that this kind of thing is lurking somewhere in the background. Because, like I, like I told you before, government is like a child. I mean, at times it's like a child, at other times it's like a, it's like a wild animal out of control. But it's childlike in that it tries to test the limits. The same way children try to test the limits of their parents. They try to push the, uh, push the line a little bit further forward. 
to see if their parents will stop them. That's what government does. It's never going to want to live within the constraints of the Constitution. Oh my gosh, Roman, what are you saying? Are you saying that the government is constantly fighting against the Constitution? Oh, yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. Now, how do I know that? What's my evidence for that, Roman? Oh my gosh, what's your evidence? You better be ready to back that up, Roman. I tell you what, uh, this is this is the final straw. You've gone too far this time, Roman. You better be. You better have evidence to back that up. Okay, I'll give you one hot shot. How many times has the Supreme Court declared something that Congress did unconstitutional? How many times has the United States Congress declared something that the president did unconstitutional? How many times has the president vetoed something that the Congress is trying to do? How many times has Congress come in and passed a law to effectively override or render null and void an executive order by the president of the United States? Or to try to overcome some kind of a legal limitation imposed on it by, by the court system? How many times has that happened? That's the government battling within itself, trying to, trying to establish lines in the sand of we can do this, we can't do that, or we're trying to do this, but we can't do that because this, this gov- the Supreme Court says we can't, but we say we can, and this, that, and the other thing. And like I've said before, a lot of times when Congress does something, when they pass a law, and the president signs it into law, and then the Supreme Court comes in and says it's unconstitutional. Sometimes, by the way, the Supreme Court's wrong about that. It is actually constitutional, but sometimes they're right. I would probably say most of the time they're probably right. That's basically the Supreme Court saying that you did something illegal. And do you think that the Congress and the president knew that it was illegal? Yes, they did. Of course they did. They're pushing the boundaries. They're pushing the limits to see what they can get away with. And sometimes the Supreme Court stops them, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just let it happen. Because it's easier to go along and get along. But that's my evidence that government is constantly pushing the boundaries. If they weren't pushing the boundaries, there would never be any argument about what's constitutional or not. There wouldn't be any argument over that. Everybody would just kind of know, oh, of course the government is doing everything that they're doing is, is perfectly legal. But of course we know that's, that's bullcrap. So tell me again how government isn't constantly pushing the boundaries, how they're not trying to violate the Constitution. Tell me again. And what about that 26th, or excuse me, the 22nd Amendment? What about that 22nd Amendment? It limits the number of times somebody may run for president, right? You know, they can only hold two terms in office. It defines that. Why the heck was that put in there? It's because some corrupt individual decided... Actually, several corrupt individuals decided, but only one of them actually pulled it off, decided that they were going to try to uh, break the precedent set by George Washington and uh, be in office like for life, like some kind of a king, a tyrant, a despot, an oppressor of some kind. That's why that was put in there, because somebody decided that they were going to test the limits of the republic. They were going to test the limits of what the founding fathers said we should do. Even though it wasn't expressly written into the Constitution originally, there was a precedent for it. There was a tradition for it. And a number of people, and one in particular, said, to heck with it, I don't give a crap. I'm going to push the limits. I'm going to take this a little further. And the country loved it so much, they came in and they said, no, we're not doing that again. That's how much the country loved that guy. That's how much the country loved what he did. The country came in and said, not again. That's the country snapping back and saying, nope, we're putting that limit. We're writing that limit, that tradition, we're writing it into law. That's how seriously we take that. See, people push the limits all the time. People try to break the traditions all the time. People try to violate the Constitution all the time. This is what people do. People who are reaching for power very rarely want to limit themselves. You ever notice that? And King George III and Parliament are no different. And sometimes I feel I have to labor over this point because people, again, just some people out there, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here in some regard, I know that, but some people out there just have such a hard time with this. And they really do believe that everything that the government does is perfectly legal. If, if, if they pass a law through Congress, it's legal. It must be legal. They pass the law. No, it's not. That doesn't mean it's legal. 
That doesn't mean it's okay, and it doesn't mean it doesn't violate the Constitution. You can't pass a law through Congress and it just automatically it's constitutional. That's not how that works. Just like back in 1775, Parliament cannot just declare Massachusetts to be an open rebellion and dispatch the army to attack the people and it be perfectly legal. It wasn't. And the Founding Fathers knew it was illegal, so they stood up and they shot back. They didn't do that because they were a bunch of rabble-rousers. If they were, they would have they started shooting before the troops ever left Boston. And they might even have been justified in doing so. Because frankly speaking, those troops had no right to be there. Certainly not in the vast numbers that they were being assembled, like an invasion force, which is what it was. So this is why I talk about the federal government not micromanaging things. You know, it's, it's this line in this letter that gets me. Quote, The administration seems determined on reducing the colonies by force to a solemn acknowledgement of the power claimed by Parliament of making laws to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever, end quote. That's what I'm talking about. If you ever wonder why I talk about these things, like why I talk about the federal government micromanaging things and why it shouldn't do that, and instead the state governments are supposed to run the states, the federal government is not supposed to run the state of New Hampshire. It's not supposed to. The state of New Hampshire is supposed to run the state of New Hampshire. This is why I'm saying that. It's because I've read these letters before, I know where this kind of crap goes, and it's not to a good place. And the federal government has no right to, quote, make laws to bind, end quote, the states, in all cases whatsoever, any more than the parliament had a right to make laws to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever. It doesn't. Again, this is the instruction manual to the United States Constitution. If you want to know where the motivations behind the Ninth and Tenth Amendments come from, right here in this letter, it's talking about it. So if you ever sit around pondering with, with uh, friends, relatives, associates, why in the world did they put the Ninth and Tenth Amendment in there? And why did they talk about enumerated powers? And why did they create these 50, why were these 50 state governments a thing, or at the time, 13 state governments? Why were they, Why is this a thing? Why don't we just have one big federal government that just runs everything? Well, this is why. And when we get away from this, when we when we deviate from this, what the Founding Fathers were trying to protect against, that is, this 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 notion of... The, the Founding Fathers were trying to escape this notion of Parliament had the right to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever. When we forget about that, and we start doing that same thing all over again, that's history repeating itself in a really bad way. And if you want to create some real turmoil, if you want to create some real suffering in a country, just go back to what Parliament was trying to do in 1775, against the advice of Benjamin Franklin. Because it's not me criticizing this, it's him and John Adams and everybody else who was alive at the time who were reading their letters. Whose letters were reading? That's who's arguing against this as much as me. I'm just channeling Benjamin Franklin and John Adams and George Washington here. That's all I'm doing. And I'm reading their words. But history does repeat itself. Keep that in mind. It's a thing to watch for. And don't count on the Supreme Court to save you, by the way. If that's what you—don't take that as the lesson from this. I mentioned the Supreme Court occasionally uh, renders something that the United States Congress and the president, by the way, because the president has to sign it into law. So that's the Supreme Court basically saying that the other two branches of government have done something illegal. Don't count on them to always do that because they won't. That's not how that works. No more than the Parliament back in 1775 was going to tell the king, hey, you're going too far. Parliament didn't do that. The Parliament was in lockstep behind the king. The parliament was not going to save the founding fathers, and the Supreme Court is not going to save you. And neither is Congress, by the way. What will save you is strict adherence to the United States Constitution and the 50 state constitutions. That's it. It's that simple. And the Declaration of Independence. 
Let us conclude this letter after our lengthy discourse thus far. Quote, I enclose Lord Chatham's proposed plan of conciliation, which was hastily and harshly rejected by the Lords. The Friends of America generally wish it had been accepted, but though some exceptions might probably be made, there are two parts of it, and certain explanations and or modifications required or proposed, yet it would have served as the basis of a treaty for agreement, and in the meantime, have prevented mischief and bloodshed. With great respect, I am, gentlemen, your most obedient, humble servant, servant Benjamin Franklin, end quote. So again, he's talking about this uh, plan for peace that was harshly rejected by the lords, as he calls it. That would be the parliament, basically. So there we have it. I mean, and this, this letter sums up exactly what we're dealing with in 1775. The economy is under attack, more or less, by these intolerable acts that were brought forward by the king and parliament, both of whom are determined to reduce the colonies by force, to abject surrender under supreme authority by parliament, which is illegal, by the way, and a violation of their rights and constitution is the founding. That's Benjamin Franklin's words, not mine, by the way. Uh, we read that in a previous letter uh, a few episodes back. That's where we're at. And then, of course, this reject of peace, this rejection of peace by the parliament, as as uh, as they say. And if it would have been if it would have been accepted, the peace, Benjamin Franklin says, quote, in the meantime, have prevented mischief and bloodshed, end quote, when talking about the peace proposal. But they didn't accept it. So the mischief and bloodshed is on the hands of parliament and the king, not the founding fathers. Let's let's get that settled right now. It wasn't the founding fathers that rejected peace. It was the parliament and the king because they were going to step over as many bodies as they had to to get this done. Their tyranny. So it's bloodshed that the Parliament and the King wanted at the end of the day in order to get there. They were willing to accept it anyway. They were willing to engage in it to get their tyranny. And I'm reminded, actually, of a quote by William Tecumseh Sherman. If you don't know who William Tecumseh Sherman is, he was a, he was a Civil War general. Frankly speaking, I don't like the guy. I'm not a big fan of Sherman, uh, to be brutally honest with you. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of that man at all. And I, maybe I'll talk about that on some other episode related somewhat to the Founding Fathers, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe not. Or maybe this this um, this particular reference will provide an entree into a discussion about William Tecumseh Sherman someday. If anybody wants to hear, by the way, uh, my my uh, my thoughts and feelings about William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, leave a review on the podcast and just let me know. Just uh, leave a comment in there saying, "Hey, I'd like to hear your commentary on on Sherman." Okay, and maybe I'll bring it on. But he has a quote that's that goes something to the effect of, "Quote: War is the remedy our enemies have chosen, and I say, let us give them all they want." End quote. War is the remedy our enemies have chosen, and I say, let us give them all they want. That was kind of the, that was fairly well the, sem the sentiment, I would say, of a Patrick Henry. So the British and the Parliament, they want bloodshed. They want war, clearly. They're sending troops to the colonies because, for, for what reason? They intend to frickin' use them. So they clearly want war. So a sentiment of the time, of course, Patrick Henry was, uh, was, was credited with saying, you know, give me liberty or give me death. Very similar to war is the remedy our enemies have chosen, and I say let us give them all they want. If the government in this case, in 1775, if their choice is war, and it is, by the way, the Founding Fathers were going to give it to them. Because the Founding Fathers were not going to be messed with. And if you want to know, again, what it takes to be free, what it takes to have a free country, that's what it takes. You have to be willing to get shot at. Shot at by people who know what they're doing. And you have to be willing to shoot back. People don't like to talk about that. It's politically incorrect to talk about it. It's uncomfortable to talk about it. It's inconvenient to talk about it. It's not popular to talk about it. But you know what? That's history. That's the real world. It's not Disneyland. It's not Fantasyland. These were real people who really died for what they believed in. And they did it because their government brought a war to their doorstep. They didn't bring a war to government's doorstep. The government brought it to them. 
And whatever it is that the Founding Fathers did right, and whatever it is that they did wrong, and they did some things wrong, some more than others, it should be known by everybody everywhere that it was the government that started this war. They brought the war. They brought the bloodshed. They wanted the bodies piled high, not the Founding Fathers. The Founding Fathers were just willing to give it back. They weren't going to run and hide. They weren't going to crawl into a dark corner and start sucking their thumb. They were going to stand up for their rights. They were going to stand up for their constitution as they saw it. And they were going to do it because they didn't want their children to be oppressed by this god-awful government. You think John Adams looked over at John Quincy Adams and thought to himself, well, you know, I'm fine with John Quincy being oppressed by this godforsaken government. No, he didn't. And I don't think Abigail Adams did either. They wanted John Quincy to grow up in a free country. They wanted John Quincy to grow up with his destiny in his own hands, not in his government's hands. They wanted him to be able to chart his own course in life, not have it dictated to by some parliament over in Britain. And by some miracle, they made it happen. And fast forward a number of years, John Quincy Adams is president of the United States of America, a world leader, which never would have happened if the Founding Fathers would have crawled into a corner and started sucking their thumb while the British Parliament marched the military over the, over the burned-out wreckage of their houses and their towns, which is exactly what would have happened if the Founding Fathers hadn't shot back. As inconvenient as it is to, that, to say that. Some people don't like to admit that, but that's exactly what happened. And why, dare I say, why, why do I say that it's inconvenient? Somebody might ask the question, why, Roman, for Pete's sake, why do you keep saying that this history is inconvenient? Why do you keep saying that, you know, talking about the founding fathers shooting back? Why do you say that's inconvenient? Well, how many people do you ever hear talk about that? I mean, seriously, how many, how many people do you ever hear talk about the, the founding of the United States of America like this, in the context of a letter like this, like we do on this podcast? Honestly, I've heard it a few times in my life, but considering how old I am, that, that's shocking that you haven't heard it more. There should be discussions about this every Independence Day in this country. Where we come from and why. What this letter means. Where does it come from? How does it impact us? How did it impact the Constitution? How did it impact our government? And how do we make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again? That should be a national discussion every single Independence Day in this country, and it's not. It may be in a few households in the United States, but other than that, it's not. Why? Because people don't like to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. And if there's one thing the American people enjoy above everything else in this day and age, not everybody, but a lot of people, it's their comfort. They want to continue driving around town with their life is good bumper sticker on their car, blissfully ignorant to the true nature of the world. And those of us who study history understand the true nature of the world. We understand where we come from. And we understand how it's all connected. And no, 200, 200 250 years ago, it doesn't matter. It's not irrelevant. It's very relevant. If you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, study what happened 250 years ago. And somewhere in between 250 years ago and today, you will see what's going to happen tomorrow. Because history repeats itself over and over and over again. Let us continue. I'm going to read one more letter. This one's shorter. Uh, we just got a few short sections we're going to read here. This is another letter from Benjamin Franklin to Thomas Vinney, uh, this time, written on February the 12th of 1775, from London. And I quote, With regard to the great question of your removing to America or sending thither any part of your family, I would only say that you know the state of things in this country as well as any man. The other country is in a rising way possessed of much public as well as private virtue, and therefore, according to the natural course of human affairs, will probably go on to flourish for some centuries to come. Were the union between the two countries to continue, the growth and virtue of that might give some stability to the empire of this 
and for a long time prevent its declension, end quote. That last word there at the end, declension, uh, it's kind of an old way of saying decline. So in other words, to prevent the decline of the empire. There's another word in there that um, might be confusing to some. It's kind of an older version of English that we don't really use anymore. Uh, he says at the beginning, quote, With regard to the great question of your removing to America or sending thither any part of your family, end quote. Thither basically means there. Whereas hither, with an H instead of a TH at the beginning, hither basically means here. Uh, so if you see somebody say hither, that's here. If you hear if you hear me say thither with a th at the beginning of it, if you can if you can hear that across the audio, that's uh that's there. So this is one of those paragraphs where you really have to you know, given two hundred years of hindsight, it has a lot to it. At the time, somebody might not have thought much about this paragraph. I don't know, but I read this paragraph two hundred and fifty years later, and I think to myself, oh my goodness, this is very very important stuff. This par just this one paragraph in one letter from Benjamin Franklin, I think, is super important. So let us uh, go through and dissect this thing and look a little deeper into it, because that's what we do on this podcast. Now, because of the way he writes this thing, you really have to pay close attention to which country he's talking about. He's, he's talking about two different countries as he describes them. And so when he says, it, you get you if you read it from the beginning, you understand exactly what he's talking about. So, quote, with regard to the great question of your removing to America or sending thither any part of your family, end quote, so thither means there. So America, he refers to as being over there. Whereas London, where he's writing from at the time, which you have to know in order for him to, in order for you to understand where he's talking about, because he never says Britain or London. He just says this uh, in this, uh, this, this part of the letter here, quote, that you know the state of things in this country as well as any man, end quote. So he's talking about Britain there. So... What he's talking to this guy about is possibly moving to America, the other guy, this uh, Miss Thomas Vinny that he's writing the letter to, possibly moving over there to America. Uh, and he says that, you know, he knows the state of things in this country, that meaning Britain, as well as any man. But then he continues, quote, The other is in a rising way, possessed of much public as well as private virtue, end quote. There's that word again, virtue. I told you you'd keep seeing that word. And the Founding Fathers keep bringing it up. Uh, it's never going to go away, by the way. You're probably going to hear that word on the last episode that I ever do on this podcast. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be—you're going to hear it regularly from now until then. Because the Founding Fathers use it a lot. And you have to ask yourself, I mean, if you really want to know where these guys are coming from, if you really want to know what these guys were up to, you have to ask yourself, why? Why does that word keep coming up and what does that mean? And I have, I have talked about that in previous episodes. If you want to know a little bit about that, just go back and listen to the library of episodes. You'll, you'll find it. Uh, we talked at some great length about that. So when he says, quote, the other is in a rising way possessed of much public as well as private virtue, end quote, the other is America. So he says this country, meaning Britain, and then he says the other uh, in a rising way, that's America he's talking about. And he continues on, quote, and therefore, according to the natural course of human affairs, will probably go on to flourish for some centuries to come, end quote. Huh. So he says it has public as well as private virtue, and therefore, quote, according to the natural course of human affairs, will probably go on to flourish for some centuries to come, end quote. So the flourishing of America is somehow linked to what he describes as public as well as private virtue. That's what those are his words, not mine. That's what he's con he's connecting those two ideas, the rising of America and public and private virtue. Something to think about. 
something to think about. And he was right about that, right? I mean, wasn't he? I mean, talk about a crystal ball. I mean, we talked about this with John Adams, how being a student of history uh, basically made him sound like Nostradamus. It's almost like he could predict the future. Of course, he couldn't. But as a student of history, he he knew roughly what was going to happen on down the line. Because, again, history repeats itself, so he knows roughly, not exactly, but roughly what's going to happen. Just like Benjamin Franklin was a student of history. And he knows that because of this, quote, public as well as private virtue, end quote, that, quote, according to the natural course of human affairs, will probably go on to flourish for some centuries to come, end quote, in reference to America. Okay. And he was right. I mean, is it any accident that the United States became one of the most prosperous countries in the history of the world? Benjamin Franklin predicted it. It's interesting to go back and l read these predictions by the Founding Fathers and figure out, you know, were they right or were they wrong? In this case, Benjamin Franklin was absolutely correct. Again, something to pay attention to. Because if you want the United States of America to continue to succeed, don't you think we probably ought to live up to the standard that Benjamin Franklin is describing here in this letter? That's probably the recipe, because it worked, according to Benjamin Franklin. He continues on, quote, Were the union between the two countries to continue the growth and virtue of that might give some stability to the empire of this and for a long time prevent its, decli de its declension, end quote. I keep wanting to say decline, but uh, he uses a different word. Same thing. So when he says, you know, were the union between the two countries to continue and the growth and virtue of that, uh, he mean, of that he means America. Over there. That country over there. That's what he's talking about. And then he says, quote, might give some stability to the empire of this, end quote. Uh, that is to say, of this country, the country he's writing from, which was London, a.k.a. the British Empire. So again, I, I wish he would just say it, but these, these founding fathers oftentimes wrote more cryptic uh, in, in, their, in their paragraphs. I don't know why they did it, but they, that's the way they wrote back then, and it, it bothers me to no end. Because especially over a podcast, you really have to listen very closely to understand who and what he's talking about at any given time. That's why I'm breaking it down like I'm doing. So he's saying that... The growth and virtue of the United States, or excuse me, of America, he's not thinking the United States at this point, he's thinking American colonies. The growth and virtue of the American colonies might give some stability to the empire, if that union were to perpetuate, that is to say, continue. That's what he's saying, and he was right. And wasn't he right in so many ways? Wasn't, hasn't the United States, the Britain and the United States, let's say the British Empire and the United States weren't necessarily operating in union with one another necessarily, but after the War of 1812 and after a lot of the, uh, the bad activities of the past were kind of put behind us, weren't the United States and, of America and the British Empire and later Great Britain, weren't they working together in many ways? World War One, World War Two, and, and elsewhere, yeah. Okay. And didn't that help prevent the decline of the British Empire for a time? I would argue that it did. I think the British Empire would have uh, would have collapsed a whole lot uh, sooner than it did, and it would have met with a whole lot more problems if it didn't have the United States over there across the water as a partner of sorts. In World War II, we see that clear as day, that it was the United States that really, in many ways, helped keep the British Empire afloat during the war. And without the United States, the British Empire would have been in a world of hurt. I, don't get me wrong, the British Empire was very capable at the time. And it had a very capable people, and it had a very capable military, but it was up against um, an incredible force. And the United States really helped uh, helped a great deal in that regard. So, I, I, you know, Benjamin Franklin's sentiments here are very accurate, and I understand what he's talking about. 
Let's continue in this letter. Quote, If the present measures are persisted and no reformation of public manners, sentiments, and practices is to be expected here, but corruption, venality, and schemes of arbitrary power continue to overflow in the land and drown all love of country in the dead sea of private interest, the fatal period will sooner arrive that shall put an end to British liberty and with it all that is valued as public felicity, end quote. Present measures, what does that mean? Quote, if the present measures are persisted in, end quote. What does he mean? He means the intolerable acts. That's what he's talking about. So he's saying that if those are persisted in, if they continue, and there's no, quote, reformation of public manners, sentiments, and practices, end quote, then what's going to happen? Well, he says it right here. Quote, corruption, venality, and schemes of arbitrary power continue to overflow in the land and drown all love of country in the dead sea of private interest. The fatal period will sooner arrive that shall put an end to British liberty and with it all that is valued as public felicity, end quote. So these, he's talking about these present measures that greatly impact people's liberty and freedom. So if you ever wanted to know, I, I talk about this, I, I spent some time talking about the Bill of Rights. At, uh, quite, it was a number of episodes ago, but it was, I, I talked about it quite a lot. If you ever wonder why I talk about things like that, this is why. This paragraph right here. And again, it's because I've read this stuff before and I know... I know where the Founding Fathers are going with this. This is not a mystery to me. But if you ever wanted to know what happens when you abandon the Bill of Rights, when you say that oh, we need to abolish the First Amendment or at least some part of it, and, oh, by the way, that Second Amendment, we need to get rid of that too, and, oh, by the way, that Fifth Amendment, yeah, might as well just get rid of that while we're at it. And for certain people that we don't like, we need to get rid of the Eighth Amendment too because, eh, they don't deserve it anyway. And, and they, they, by the way, they don't deserve a trial um, either, by the way. But, um... You know, for certain, you know, we need to get rid of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments as well because, you know, they don't really make any sense to us because we forgot to read the letters from our founding fathers. And if you want to know what the natural consequence of that is and where that leads to when you try, when you actually abandon freedom and liberty and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the thing that these, these frameworks that the founding fathers built, this is exactly where that goes, what, what Franklin just described there. Quote, corruption, venality, and schemes of arbitrary power, end quote. Does that sound like Washington, D.C. to you? Just I'm just putting it out there. Just a question. Something that every American should ask themselves. I mean, allegedly there's 320 million Americans, or 330, something like that. Uh, allegedly there's 330 million Americans. Of course, um, I think you and I both know that that's not entirely true, but at least I know that that's not true. But let's, let's say that there's 320 million Americans. Every one of them should ask themselves that question. And for the children who aren't old enough to know, they, the parents should be asking it for them. Does this sound like Washington, D.C. to you? Quote, corruption, venality, and schemes of arbitrary power, end quote. Make sure to ask yourself that question. Really f try to find the answer. I told you, I, I mentioned a few episodes ago that once upon a time, this was many years ago, but once upon a time I engaged a project to watch C-SPAN for like two months. I mean, it went on for weeks and weeks. And I would watch it almost every day for hours, and I would take notes while I was doing it. I still have my notes, by the way. And I was trying to answer this question. Is Washington, D.C. governed by, quote, corruption, venality, and schemes of arbitrary power, end quote? And I did that along with a couple of other things to try to answer that question, and the answer that I came back with was absolutely yes. That's exactly what it is. Now, you may come up with a different answer, but if you don't ask that question and you don't try to find the answer, then you're probably doing poor Benjamin Franklin here a disservice, because he wants you to pay attention to stuff like that. At least I feel he does. Now, you may come up with, like I said, you may come up with a different answer than I did. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, um... The important thing is, is that you look. 
And tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. Quote, And drown all love of country in the Dead Sea of private interest. The fatal period will sooner arrive that shall put an end to British liberty, and with it all that is valued as public felicity, end quote. Does that sound familiar to you? And for those folks who live outside the United States, I mean, ask yourself the same question. Does that sound familiar? Do you see that anywhere in society today? What do I think about when I read that? You know, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll read it one more time so that we can think about this together. Quote, And drown all love of country into the, in the dead sea of private interest. The fatal period will sooner arrive that shall put an end to British liberty and with it all that is valued as public felicity, end quote. Private interest. There's, there's, there, there's two words out of, the, out of that sentence that really make me think. Drown all love of country in the dead sea of private interest. What is the Dead Sea of private interest? I think it's different things to different people. I think for those people in Washington, D.C., it's their ambition, it's their career, it's their money, it's their wealth, it's their mansions, it's their elaborate lifestyle, it's the connections and network that they use to get their children these very, very lucrative jobs, jobs that you can't get for your children. I think it's that for them. For ordinary people, I think it's something different. You know, there's, there's, people don't talk about this much anymore. At least I haven't heard anybody talk about this in years. You ever heard of the single issue voter? Like the, the voter out there in the United States who just votes because of one thing and one thing only. That's the only issue they vote about. It's just that one thing. And that one thing is always the same. It's something selfish to them. It's about their job. It's about their career. It's about their own little cause celeb. It's about their little pet private issue. That's their single issue that they vote on. They don't care about anything else. They don't care about national security. They don't care about the Bill of Rights. They don't care about any of it. They just care about that one thing. That's private interest. That's partly, I think, what he's talking about, along with, again, the corrupt politicians and all the rest of it. You need to be very careful about that. Um, you need to be careful not to engage in that kind of private interest. When you, when, you, when you think about this country, you need to think about the big picture. You need to be thinking about national security. You need to be thinking about the Constitution. You need to be thinking about states and their constitutions and how that balance is supposed to work. And you need to be thinking about the balance between the three powers, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. All of that. Otherwise, you are participating in this drowning, quote, all love of country in the Dead Sea of private interest, end quote. And you help bring forward at an accelerated rate this, quote, fatal period will sooner arrive that shall put an end to British liberty and with it all that is valued as public felicity, end quote. That's my argument. And of course, you replace British liberty with American liberty, or whatever, whichever country you live in, assuming your country actually has any liberty at all, which is a, a bit of a stretch. There aren't many countries out there that actually have what I would describe as something reminiscent of British liberty from back in the day, not even Great Britain. By the way, the if you wonder what the Founding Fathers were fighting for, they were fighting for British liberty. Isn't that interesting? The their concept of British liberty. And American liberty, what, what became American liberty, was really just what the Founding Fathers believed British liberty was supposed to be. And I wonder if people in Britain today even make ha, think about that at all. I wonder if they even give that a passing glance. And I think some do. As a matter of fact, I know some do. I know for a fact. But I also know a great many don't. The, you know, the people of Britain, the people of Great Britain, have a lot to learn from America's Founding Fathers. And I don't think they spend the time to study it like they should. But then again... Most Americans don't either, so uh, they're kind of in the same boat with the United States. Let us continue in this letter and finish it up with one last paragraph. Quote, If you have another son to spare, having qualified him with writing, arithmetic, and merchant's accounts, he might be placed as an apprentice with a merchant in Philadelphia. 
for a small premium, which would give him an introduction into business there. Or if you intend him for a farmer, which of all other employments I take to be the honestest and the most honorable, because the most independent, you can furnish him at home with the necessary knowledge and experience ready to be employed on land, which may there be easily procured for him, end quote. He's still talking to this guy about moving to America, and he's basically saying if you have another son, you might send him to America to be an apprentice of sorts, or perhaps a farmer. And what do I find interesting about this paragraph? Because it seems very, eh, innocuous, just kind of something between these two guys. There's one line there that struck me, quote, Or if you intend him for a farmer, which of all other employments I take to be the honestest and most honorable because the most independent, end quote. And honestest, I'm pretty sure is not a word, um, but he basically takes it to be the most honest of professions, essentially is what he's saying. I think at times we forget the farmers in society today. I don't think they took it for granted back in 70, 1775, because that's what a lot of people did. A lot of people grew up around agriculture, because that was a big part of the economy, was agriculture. It was huge. George Washington, obviously, farm. John Adams had a farm. A lot of them did. You know, John Adams up there in Boston, I mean, even despite his law practice, I mean, he was a lawyer most of the time, but he also had a farm. Isn't that interesting? And we read a letter, I, I believe, once before that, that fairly well revealed to me, amongst some other things, that uh, I think John Adams really enjoyed working on his farm. I think he did. But why, why do I find this fascinating? Because, you know, I think farmers, get, again, in this day and age, they get forgotten because not many people grew up around it. So many people grew up in big cities and live in big cities so far removed from farms. It's really easy for farmers to get attacked today. Yeah, you heard me. There, it is very easy for farmers to come under attack today. And that bothers me. You know, farmers back during 1775, you know, as, as important as they were then, they're just as important today, if not more so. And we really need to pay close attention to that, I think. This, this, this attention that Benjamin Franklin is drawing to farming as one of the most honest professions. It's a far cry from politics in Washington, D.C., I'll tell you that. I mean, the politicians uh, in Washington, D.C. are much more have much more earned our scorn and our, our derision than the farmers have, I think. And so always keep an eye on this, you know, make sure that you don't fall into this trap of attacking the farmers. Uh, and I don't suspect that anybody listening to this podcast would, but, you know, just something to keep an eye on. I really, uh, I really do take this, this particular one very seriously. You know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the Founding Fathers. I pull a lot of stuff out of these letters that we can apply in the modern day, and I try to put in a modern context because, it's like I said, it's all applicable to today. And history, like I said, history repeats itself. These things come around every now and again. And farmers, you know, have been attacked in times past in various countries, and there's reasons for it. And for the same reasons that we talked about earlier about the government attacking the economy in Great Britain in 1775, they don't care what the merchants say. They don't care about the suffering and the ruin that the merchants were talking about. Uh, they don't care about how that's going to affect the economy and the ability of people to make a living and support their families, their cities, their their farms, and their, their children. They don't care at times. Just like today with the... Um, you know, with various things, you know, you see governments at times attack varying sectors of the economy in some situations. And believe me when I tell you this, they don't care about the effects. They don't care about the side of the consequences. They don't give a crap. Attacking farming is the same kind of thing. We read earlier in this, well, in the previous letter from Benjamin Franklin on this episode, we read about the about Britain was going to start attacking the fisheries of at least four of the colonies, I believe it was. Now, what's that all about? Why are they attacking the fisheries? That's food production. It's not that far a stretch to say that they might attack the farms. 
It may sound like I'm off the beaten path here, but really I'm not. It's really much one and the same. And these are all things that we need to keep an eye on. We need to be very, very careful about this in the modern day, as well as paying attention to how it unfolded in 1775. If we're going to take the, the value of this podcast is, is really there really is only, va only the only value you'll ever get out of this podcast is the lessons to be learned from it and how we can apply that to today. Otherwise, there's no point in listening to this podcast. There's none or any history podcast for that matter. Absolutely no point in listening to any of it. There's no point in ever reading a history book unless you know that there's lessons that you can pull out of that that you can apply today. And there always is. The Roman Empire has plenty of lessons that we can apply today in our current life. Plenty of lessons. Greece, same thing. British Empire, same thing. It all comes around. And if you want to know where farmers have been attacked in times past, I mean, North Korea is one of them. The, the classic example is Ukraine under Stalin, the starvations and whatnot. Uh, just talk to the folks in Ukraine. They'll tell you all about it. They tend to remember that history, believe it or not. As much as some countries don't remember their history, I mentioned Germany earlier on this episode. That might that might make some people in Germany upset. Frankly speaking, I don't care. But um, if Germany knew what was good for them, they would um, they'd pay very close attention to what happened previously and make sure that they don't make the same mistake twice. And I'm not talking about the 1930s and 40s exclusively. I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about, you know, East and West Germany and all the rest of it. They need to pay very close attention to that. And they may be insulted by the fact that some American is telling them to pay attention to that. But, you know, they shouldn't be. Because really all I'm doing is telling them to pay attention to their own history. Just like I am spending a lot of time paying attention to my own history here in the United States. I'm not a hypocrite on this issue. And some people might think that, you know, oh, Roman, you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to Germany. You know, I don't know about that because I, I cast a glance over there to Germany and I, I see some things that concern me greatly. And it's up to, I don't, I, honestly, I don't really care. If Germany wants to go down the old road that they've, they've gone down in the past, they can. It's their call. I just, uh, I hope that they don't choose that path for themselves. It's basically the reason why I mention that. History is, um, you know, beneficial to everybody. And... We all have to know and remember our history. And I think the I'll summarize this episode by saying that, yes, again, history does repeat itself. We all need to make sure that the bad things that happen don't repeat themselves again. And Benjamin Franklin's letters on this episode here, there's, there's a lot of bad stuff kind of coming up in it. This use of force that he talks about with uh, the British government, the British government rejecting peace, this, uh, this lack of virtue, perhaps, in the British Empire, the corruption that he talks about in the British Empire. These two letters really do capture a big, big part of all of the problems with the British Empire in 1775. He talks a lot about it. And this can happen again in Great Britain today. It can happen again in the United States. It can happen again in Canada. There's something to watch. And it can happen again in, in any other place in the world, you know. And I don't think most people really desire to live under that kind of... Uh, problematic government like what we see coming out of Britain in 1775. I don't think so. I certainly don't. I don't think you do either. Uh, let's hope not anyway. And But if we're going to make sure that that doesn't happen again, we have to we have to be able to know it when we see it. And the only way you're going to know it when you see it is if, you, if it sounds familiar to you because of what you read from the past. That's the value we get out of this material. Dr. Franklin is trying to educate us. Dr. Franklin is trying to send us a message from the past. It's like a message in a bottle. And good news. It's very well written. Benjamin Franklin was very good at writing this stuff down and communicating it to, because he was trying to do a good job of communicating, communicating it to his people back in the American colonies from London. And we get to benefit from that, from all of his efforts from 250 years ago. We get to benefit from that as well. And I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm so glad to be able to read these letters from Benjamin Franklin because they're some of the best letters that you'll ever read from the Founding Fathers from this particular time period in 1775. They're so informative about what was really going on 
And these letters should be read in every history class that studies American, the American Revolution. Every history class should at least take these letters from Benjamin Franklin that I have selected and, and, and study them in class, in my humble opinion. Not that I'm some genius about selecting these letters, it's just Benjamin Franklin was so good at communicating what was going on. It's not about me and selecting the letters, it's about Benjamin Franklin writing the letters. It's very good. And it provides us great historical context. And if you agree with me, leave a review on the podcast let me know. If you disagree, leave a review on the podcast and let me know. And if you have any thoughts or uh, feelings otherwise, uh, same thing. Leave a review on the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That's where I check those, by the way. And uh, and let me know what's going on. And I hope you found this, uh, this episode to be enlightening in some particular kind of way. And I hope you enjoyed the previous episode as well. We're going to continue our march on, and we're going to do another episode again in the future. But until then, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.